Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris Causey. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm so excited that you've chosen to join us this Sunday morning as we continue our series that we kicked off a couple weeks ago called A Little Bit of Wisdom Goes a Long Way. The whole idea of this series is that as we prepare for this new normal that we're getting ready to head into this, hopefully more like 2021 without the pandemic kind of normal more and more, that we go into a life that we're actually excited to live, that we're actually kind of thrilled to, to see play out in our lives. You see, what this pandemic has given us is an opportunity to hit pause, to hit reset, and to reimagine. That for all of us, it's been a really challenging year, but I believe that it's inside of those cocoons that butterflies are made, that there's a chance for transformation to happen. And one of the ways that we experience that is through a series of kind of wisdom moments and I want to equip you, I want to give you some questions that have been so helpful for me in my life. These questions come from a series of teaching that turned into a book um, that was deeply impactful of my life, um, on my life, written by Andy Stanley. And this is ultimately, over the next, over these kind of six weeks of this series, I'm not going to do justice. Hopefully I'm a big commercial for you to go and buy the book and read it. But here's what I know. I've seen this impact my life for almost two decades now. And he stepped into my life with a series of questions that were transformative for me. And my goal is as we start to look towards this next season, that these questions would be helpful for you too. Today, I want to introduce you to the second question. And to start there, I want to give and ask you a question. So what is the longest fence wall in the world? I'm giving you a hint. I've got it on the screen right now. But what is the longest fence or wall in the world? It's not the Great Wall of China. It's actually this wall, this fence, this chain-link fence that runs thousands and thousands of miles in the center of Australia. This fence was built there for the express purpose, and it's continued to grow for the reason um, of one little animal called a dingo, which is probably should get the um, coolest name award because I just love saying the word dingo. That's just a fun name, right? And so dingoes are pretty aggressive predators. They're kind of the top of the chain predator for Australia. And part of Australia, as a result of some of the colonization, one of the biggest industries agriculturally is sheep herding. The sheep industry is really, really, it's a billion, multi-billion dollar industry in Australia. And the issue was, is that their sheep kept disappearing because dingoes were coming in and killing them. And so the idea, let's construct a wall that's going to control the dingoes from getting in and killing our sheep. And so they did. And it was largely successful. The sheep population continued to grow. There wasn't the deaths and the destruction and the mayhem that they had been causing. Um, but... When the sheep population began to grow because there was no dingoes, something else started to happen. It's, in fact, something scientists have been studying for a while that for those with the trained eye, if you're looking at this picture, you can see some of the details already present in this aerial photo. You see, on this side of the wall, on the left side, is where the, the dingoes are present. And on this side of the wall, there's no dingoes. This keeps them from getting in over there. So what's happened is that dingoes weren't just predators for 
sheep. They were also predators for kangaroos, too. And kangaroos in this desert area that we're looking at, specifically, their population began to explode, and their, one of their primary food sources of vegetation started to decline rapidly. In fact, if you were staring at this photo, you can tell how this photo has a lot more green, has a lot more kind of speckled spots on it, whereas this one's a little bit more sparse. And while we're zoomed out, you can't necessarily see the terrain, but what's actually happened is because of the kangaroos being unchecked on this side, eating more and more vegetation, what's happened is the vegetation in this very sandy desert area, um, the vegetation's not there to keep the sand rooted. So what's begun to happen in the desert in central Australia is that the wind and the sand dunes that were not present before are starting to pick up and that these sand dunes climb so big that they start to affect wind patterns in some of the surrounding area. All because they wanted to keep out dingoes. That there's been ecological danger and destruction and there has been devastation of vegetation and all of that. Poor soil, everything because of a decision to build a fence to keep out a dingo. And if you remember at the very beginning of the series, we talked about Proverbs 27, 12. And I encourage you to memorize it, that the prudent see danger and they take refuge. But the simple keep going and pay the penalty. And that, in essence, what separates the wise and the unwise is that the wise have an ability to see the dots and connect them. They understand that this can lead to this, that can lead to this, that can lead to this. And in some ways, this photo, this wall, is a great picture of what happens when you live your life with disconnected dots. When you don't ask the question, well, what happens if dingoes aren't allowed into a huge area of tens of thousands of square miles? What happens then? Well, the kangaroo population will go up. What happens then? Well, then vegetation gets consumed, and it upends the soil, and the soil's not as fertile, and sand dunes, they didn't connect the dots. And now what they have is embodied in this picture. And that, uh, that little bit of wisdom of knowing to see beyond your moment, to see how the dots connect, has been underneath the surface of this series. That the idea is that one of the ways that we get better decisions is exactly what I just did when we were talking about the dingo fence. I was like, well, if we, if we prevent the dingoes from getting over there, then what happens? If they would have just said, so what, or then what, they would have probably avoided a lot of the destruction that's happened in the desert in Australia. You see, better questions set us up for better decisions and fewer regrets. In fact, last week, I left you with a question that was meant to kind of help you, that first question, the integrity question, the honesty question, which is, as we're making a decision, as we're wrestling through that next decision in our life, am I telling myself the truth or am I selling myself a regret? That's the first question in this series, am I telling myself the truth, am I being honest, really, or am I selling myself a regret? And today I want to look at the second question that has the power to revolutionize the way we see our lives. And to do that, I want to tell you a story, another story, not about a dingo fence, but in some ways a story that's not too disconnected from the dingo fence. It's a story found in one of the first books, the first book 
of the Bible, a book called Genesis. It's the portion of story that's dedicated the last 10 chapters. So almost 20% of the book of Genesis is dedicated to the story of this one individual. And it's his story that I want to kind of tell you in general and then drill in to just one of the many moments that illustrates the technique and the principle that serves as the basis for our second question. The story of Joseph begins with Joseph being born to the favorite. He's the, he's the son of the favorite wife of Jacob. See, this is a different age and time and culture. And one of the kind of hallmarks and kind of commonalities in that specific time frame, almost 4,000 years ago, was that um, men would have multiple wives. And it was as dysfunctional as you can imagine it being with multiple spouses. And one of them was his favorite spouse, and she had a son. Now, he had multiple other sons. In fact, he had 10 other sons, and they were all born to different women, and none of them were born of his favorite wife. So Joseph's born. He's the only son that she's had, and Jacob loves him more than he loves any of the others. I mean, this is one of the things that siblings say right, frequently in households when they want to jab their parents. It's like, you don't like me as much as you like them, or they're your favorite. And a lot of times it's not true. But in this situation, it actually was. Jacob was really, like, really, really all about Joseph. He gave Joseph gifts. He even gave Joseph a coat made of different colors, which at the time, in a day and age where ink was not something you could fabricate in a plant and roll out, you know, so colors weren't necessarily a common thing when it came to fabric, but he had a coat of many colors, which was a sign of incredible wealth and incredible favor, and so Jacob gives him that coat. He's clearly the favorite son. He's the youngest, and all the other brothers are so mad. They're so jealous. This is so dysfunctional that they begin to hate him. They hate him so much that they come to the conclusion that the only way to fix this problem is by getting rid of him. So they orchestrate and they set up a moment where as he's coming to find them, they begin to scheme about killing him. The ten brothers surround him. They throw him into a pit. And then they have to debate, how are they going to kill him? Fortunately for Joseph, they begin to chicken out and say, well, you know, maybe this isn't the best idea. And one of them has in the moment what they think is a really good idea. Well, actually, let's sell him as a slave Take the money, we'll profit from the money, and we'll tell our dad he died. And so they're like, that's great, because now they're stuck, right? They have done this to Joseph, they can't go back. So they sell him into slavery, they take his coat of many colors, they dip it in blood, and they tell their father that they found the coat, and Joseph is dead. Joseph's life, at this point, he's a young teenage boy. And he's taken into a foreign land where they speak a language he doesn't speak. And he's put on an auction block and he's sold. He's sold to a a military officer whose name is Potiphar. And as a young teenage boy who's been ripped out of his home where he was very affluent, very wealthy, he's now being stuck in the home of a man whose day and night he's supposed to follow the commands. And Joseph does something that I don't know that I would have been able to do. Joseph decides to take ownership in that moment and says, I'm going to treat this like it's my own house. 
And God's favor is on Joseph's decision, and Joseph begins to lead, and Potiphar notices how well he does with everything that's entrusted to him, and Potiphar essentially elevates him to be the chief servant of the house. That's about as high he's going to be able to go in this caste system that he's living in. He's a foreigner in a foreign land, but it's not as bad as it had been. And it's this part of the story I want to pick up, about two years into his story. It says, so Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except for the food he ate. This kind of gives you a sense of how, how trustworthy Joseph had become. Potiphar's only decision every single day was what was he going to eat. And now Joseph was well-built and handsome. This is exactly what my wife says about me. So, you know, I can totally relate to this moment. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. This is pretty direct. She notices how good he looks. In her mind, he's just a, he's just a servant. He can, she can do with him whatever she wants to. And so she says, hey, come. Come to bed with me. Now, I'm going to imagine that with her being this direct, this is probably not the first time she's ever done this with a servant. Probably not the first time she's ever said this. In fact, maybe it's even known throughout the servant quarters that this is the type of woman she is. And others have talked about probably some of the favors and the way it's helped them out. And Joseph is staring as a, as a kid probably just short of 20 years old at this point at a situation that is a no-win situation. And yet, what's interesting, instead of seeing this as either a red flag or a green light, Joseph does something that I don't know if a lot or if any had done prior to him. He refused. He doesn't consider, well, yes or no, Actually, what he does in his response serves as an, as an indication, as a, an illustration to help us understand a technique that he employs in this moment, almost 4,000 years ago, that has the power to transform your moment today. And I want you to see it. And I want to kind of dig underneath the surface just a little bit so that we can all kind of, because I don't want to miss it. But he refused With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he has, he owns. He's entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you. Because you are his wife. And then he goes, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to the bed with her or even be with her. What Joseph understands in that moment, what he does in that moment is so helpful for you and I in the course of our life too. Maybe the moment that he's in doesn't look anything like the moments that you and I find ourselves in. But what he does is Joseph doesn't just see the dingo fence. He sees the devastation of the landscape down the road. He has an ability to see 
not the moment, but his story. You see, Joseph understands that his life is more than just a series of random, disconnected events. It's not this moment where he's sold into slavery or this moment where his father treats him as the favorite or this moment that he's now found himself in where he's having to refuse the advances of his master's wife. He recognizes life's not random, disconnected events. It's a story. He connects the dots and he sees his story and it's why he responds the way he does. He's like, no, you are his wife. He's saying to her, consider your story, Mrs. Potiphar. You're married to Mr. Potiphar. Do you really want an affair with a Hebrew slave to be a part of your storyline? Because I don't want that in my story. And he, he gives us a hint of how he views his story. He views it through the lens of heaven, of his entire life. When he says, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? The God of my story, the one who I trust, how could I ever do something like that with the story he's allowing me to write? You see, Joseph understood something that I think justifiably many people in his situation could have missed. He was a victim. He was in this moment, in this situation, for none of his own fault. And many others would have been like, well, at least I get something out of this, or at least I have some way to kind of leverage my station in life. But no, he doesn't think like that. He understood something that's really important. And I'm grateful that he said what he said, because what he got that's important for us to know is that you write the story of your life one decision at a time. Joseph understood that. Like, no, Mrs. Potiphar, I'm writing a story. And I refuse to allow this moment, the decision to say yes to you, to be a part of the story I'm writing. He had decided he was going to tell a better story. And when we are able to step in and see in our situation, in our circumstances, that every decision we make is building a story. It puts us in a position to step back from the moment with all of its emotional, with all of its kind of high pressure, with all of its FOMO, and actually decide we're going to write a different story. I mean, in some ways, we're all standing on the precipice of this. Um, CNN this past week had an article that just made me laugh. I'm like, what is this? It was, the article's title was Seven Reasons This Summer's Going to Be Lit. And I was like, what in the world? And so like, but it was a part of a trend. I think that's why I was laughing at it because I've, in a lot of different news articles this past week that I was reading, there's this commonality of we're getting ready to go into a summer for the first time that we're almost kind of vaccinated, we're almost post-pandemic, even though we're still in the middle of this because our kids are still in the process of going through it. But they're listing all the indicators that this summer is going to be lit, it's going to be off the chain, that we're going to overspend, we're going to overdrink, we're going to, they're, they're highlighting that condom sales this past month is up 24%. 
And they're just giving all these different little indicators, champagne and types of certain alcohol are all like skyrocketing cells. And I think for many of us in this season, we're on the precipice of so much bent up, like pent up, like I want to go live. And Vox is writing an article to say, hey, by the way, I know you want to go experience and you want to do this and do this, but make sure that you keep in mind your bank account and your budget. Because Vox is like, I think we may all be a little bit more emotional this summer than usual. And even as we go into this this summer, as we go into the fall, as we're making decisions about our life, this is an important piece of powerful principle to keep in mind. That this summer will be part of your story and my story. This past year will be a part of your story and my story. And we have to decide, like Joseph, to have a story worth telling. To say, I'm going to live a story that I... I want to share, that I want to tell, not skip over, not minimize. This has actually probably been one of the most powerful decision-making frameworks in my life. Some of the biggest decisions I ever made came out of the, the second question I want to teach you today. In fact, uh, about seven or eight years ago, I stood with two job opportunities in front of me. I had a job opportunity from uh, one of the largest churches in America to come on staff with them and potentially um, become the next lead pastor if things worked out well, a church of over 20,000 people. Or I had a job offer from Encounter Church, which doesn't have 20,000 people. Um, and that was probably one of the hardest decisions I ever made. One was you know, big and exciting and the pay was going to be great and we could have a big house or we could come here and none of those things were going to happen. And that ultimately what set the stage for us is Jenny and I, one night we were kind of praying and processing through like which one because everything screams this is the no-brainer but I was like, what if there's more than this moment? And I, and I pushed back and I imagined my life 30 years from now. And I imagined what God could do through a church, like Encounter Church. What he could do through people like you and me. Who really fully sold out believed that God was not done in our community. That God was still writing something incredible through the lives of his people, that there was a force of love and hope and resurrection power that people, even if they had exp experienced some things that had devastated and disconnected them from faith, they'd never experienced that resurrected power that we get to be a part of. And the idea of imagining what a church completely kind of built from the base on who Jesus is and what Jesus desired for us to do, what kind of church could that be? And when I zoomed out 30 years, I was absolutely convinced that the storyline of my life, the impact of my life as the pastor of this church with you would have a greater impact than being the pastor of a church of 20 plus thousand people. The only reason I was able to get to that point, to get out of the fetal position of what am I doing? There's no health insurance. There's no like pay wise. I mean, all these things in my head. The only reason I was able to slide, push back from the table was I imagined myself 30 years from now. I imagined my daughter 30 years from now. And the stories that we would sit around and tell. Because here's the thing, man. I have seen God show up 
and do miracles. I've seen him time and time and time again do breakthroughs and see people's lives changed and see hope transferred to people who didn't believe there was hope. I, I hear regularly of people who walk in when we walk into this space and say, I felt God here. We're in the process of working towards September to open a preschool. When we first got our first quote for that preschool, we were staring at about $300,000 to open up a preschool financially. Between the constructions and the playground and all of that, and that the I'm a fool because I'm trying to start a preschool so that we can make a profit to give that profit away to do even more good because that's why I'm here. That's why I'm your pastor. That's why I want to do what I want to do because I believe God's still alive and still desiring to work through his church and doing extraordinarily more than we could ask or imagine. And yet we're in the middle of a pandemic and giving his like, woo, boom, right? And I'm staring at a $300,000 quote from the construction company that built this space. And they give us a really good quote. Man, God, I, and he takes me back. And I have to remind myself I'm in the house of miracles. I have to remind myself of what he's done before. I have to go back to that moment sitting on my bed crying out to him that, God, I want to live a story worth telling. And that in the next 30 days, we'll be able to install that playground. We'll be able to to finish up all the construction costs. And it won't be $300,000. That God ended up opening doors. Friends of friends introduced us to people. A guy who so loved the idea of what we want to do with preschools in the Boston area that he's like, you know what? I want to help you. I want to get, get you stuff as much at cost as possible. I want to leverage my connections for you. And that when it's all said and done, that we'll have built what would have been a $300,000 expense will be somewhere around the number of about $75,000. I watched God in the middle of a pandemic when giving is down here. When we're staring and wondering how in the world do we make it. And I watched God make a way and provide. And I remember going home that day and sitting down at the dinner table and saying to Ella, Ella, let me tell you a story. You know how daddy's talked about the church wanting to open up preschools because he really wants the church to be able to do even more good because he was really frustrated during the pandemic how we, our, our ability to do good was so limited and that he never wanted that to happen again. That he doesn't want to just pray. He doesn't want to just speak towards what justice could look like but to actually be a part of church that's mobilizing that and she's like yeah dad can we eat our taco and I'm like no no I need you to hear this it was going to be three hundred thousand dollars Ella a guy called us today that said he'll get us everything we need for the playground and with all the construction seventy five thousand I was like can can you tell me what three hundred thousand when you take $75,000 away from it, she's like, Dad, you're trying to trick me to do math. I, you, I thought you were telling me a story. This is a word problem, right? And I'm like, no, do the math, sweetie. $225,000 God showed up and made away with. 
All because throughout this journey, I keep deciding this is a story worth telling. This church is a story worth telling. You are a story worth telling. And so I want to leave you with this last question. This second question in a series of five questions. And when you find yourself in a situation, a circumstance that you're trying to decide, what do I do? When you're in that position where I'm staring at a really large potential opportunity and what I have in front of me is a very small one, I ask myself this question, what story do I want to tell? When it's all said and done, when I'm older, when I look back on my life, what type of story do I want to tell? On this decision of life, in this season, in a pandemic, what story do I want to tell about this? In my relationships, in my marriage with my kids, in in my business responsibilities, when all of these decisions, when all these moments are reduced to the story that I will tell, what story do I want to tell? Do I want to be a hero? Do I want to be the villain? Do I want to be a good example? Do I want to be a bad example? What part do I hope everyone else remembers? What story do I want to tell? But here's the thing. In the midst of all of that, I recognize for some of us, what comes up inside of us is a lot of the story that we don't want to tell. Maybe whole chapters of your life come to mind. And those are the parts that we don't want to sit down and tell our kids or our grandkids. Those text messages, the video, the comments, the email, the decisions, we one day don't want to go back to that. We want to forget it. And if that's where you are, I want to tell you a little bit more of Joseph's story to close out today. Because you are exactly in the same place Joseph's brothers were. You see, the rest of the story is that Joseph makes the best decision, says no, because he's decided he's going to tell a better story. And what happens is it doesn't work out for him. You see, this idea that Christianity is, oh, if you do these things, it's going to work out for you. No, that's not true. That's not Christianity. It's that even sometimes when we do the right thing, it turns out all wrong. What's Christianity is that God is above all of that. And that he's not changing even in the midst of our circumstances changing. And that there's hope even in the midst of what looks like a hopeless situation. So Potiphar's wife tells everyone that she was raped by him. And he's arrested, thrown in the prison. And what does Joseph do? He decides every decision he makes is a story he's going to tell. And so he does the same thing in the prison that he did with Potiphar's. He takes ownership, and he serves, and he does everything as excellent as he can. He does this for years, in fact. This teenage boy who's been thrown in the prison, accused of rape, is now in his 30s. And he finds himself in front of the Pharaoh of Egypt. Joseph seems to have a little bit of insight because God's favor, God's wisdom is with him. And he tells Pharaoh an answer to a question that Pharaoh had not been able to anyone to find. And so Joseph becomes the second in command of Egypt. He sits at the right hand of Pharaoh. 
And Joseph orchestrates with some amazing leadership clarity and decisions. He orchestrates and helps them navigate a seven-year famine that was regional. That should have devastated the nation of Egypt. But because Joseph had practiced wisdom and he had held back some of the excess that had come in those first seven years when things were good, he built storehouses up that helped sustain Egypt through the famine. They have so much extra food that the other nations around them hear about it and they start traveling to Egypt to ask for food because everyone is starving. And lo and behold, one day Joseph's sitting in his room, in his court, uh, with dignitaries visiting, asking for food, and who walks in but ten guys who don't recognize him anymore, his ten brothers. Joseph looks different. He speaks Egyptian. He's dressed in the full kind of regalia of Egyptian leaders. I mean, only Pharaoh was, was higher, so this is a significant individual. It's the vice president in some ways of the nation, and they stand before him, and they're saying, we're starving, our family's starving. And Joseph seem, starts to ask them a series of questions to dig in and to unpack, to understand who they are and what they've done. And the thing that he can overhear them talking about, because they don't realize he speaks Hebrew, is um, they're talking about, do you think we're being punished because of what we did to Joseph? He can tell they're still carrying the guilt and the shame of the choices they made. And that these ten, with this secret, together are finally talking about a story, a chapter of their story that they've never talked about anywhere else. And what does Joseph do? He leans into their story. And he ends up providing food, providing the housing and the resources to save his family. He ends up giving them grace. And he helps them write a better story than the one that they had written so far. And that in some ways, Joseph embodied everything that ultimately Jesus would come to do. He sits at the right hand of God. He knows the worst of your story and my story. And yet if we come to him with humility, if we come to him sorry for what we've done and determined to turn away from those things, that what we find in the exchange is life and hope and grace and forgiveness and a chance to write a whole new story. That is what Joseph gives Jacob's brothers. Why? Because even then in that moment, Joseph had decided his story wasn't going to be controlled by bitterness and anger. It was going to be ruled by grace and forgiveness. Because ultimately, life is not a series of random, disconnected events. It's a story. And we decide one decision at a time what story we're going to tell. And whenever we find ourselves facing a decision, big or small, that has consequences, we have to ask ourselves, what story do I want to tell? And to get you started with that question, I want to give you three questions that will help. For reflection, for conversation with others, for part of a small group. The first question is, do you want to live a story you'll be proud to tell? I don't want to assume your answer is yes. It's worth asking that question. Do you want to be proud of the story you'll tell one day?
the story of your marriage, the story of your freedom that you got from addiction, when you tell your kids who are staring at some of the genetic struggles that are sitting inside of them, the story of financial freedom because you consistently made decisions to underspend what you made, not overspend, a story of generosity that was marked by the way you gave your life away and the way you serve and released your resources to help others. If you want to have a story, you're going to be proud to tell. And if that's true, then what needs to change in your story to make that happen? If there's the ideal story you want to tell, then in reality, what's in the way of you sharing that story? Maybe it's a decision you've made that you need to unmake. And yes, all of those things have consequences. All of those things are going to have implications. But maybe that's the part you're most proud of, the courage it took to unmake that decision. Maybe it's a decision you need to make that goes against the grain. But it's one that you're proud of, that you'll know you'll be proud of one day. Maybe for someone in, in growing in their faith, maybe it's a decision that's, that's about strengthening your faith, which sometimes looks a little different than the choices we typically make in our life. And to get even more practical, tactical, what needs to be added or removed from your calendar this week for these things to come true? Maybe there's something you're doing already that you need to stop doing if you're going to have a story you're proud of. Or maybe there's someone or something you, that needs to be a part of your weekly rhythm or monthly rhythm if you're going to have a story you're going to be proud to tell one day. Because what I know for all of us is that God is rooting for us to have a story that we stand before of him one day proud to tell. And one of the best ways that we can do that is by simply asking the question, what story am I going to tell? Let's pray.